Well, memoirs have become a popular form of literature. Now, I always thought a memoir was just kind of a cool or sexy word for autobiography, but I looked it up from the French meaning memory or reminisce. Uh, reminisce um, a memoir is typically written in the first person and is actually a subcategory of an autobiography. You see, an autobiography is, is your biography when you write your own life story. But a memoir is usually not your whole story. It's a slice of your life concerning, that's what they say, certain events or certain moments. Certain events, certain moments. So, for example, I looked it up on Amazon, and the number one selling memoir is entitled, Orange is the New Black. Now, I'm not recommending the book. I don't know anything about it other than what uh, the brief uh, description given said. Apparently, this girl uh, carried a suitcase full of drug money somewhere and, and then was arrested for it uh, some 10 years later. So she spent 15 months in prison. This memoir is about that prison time, this, this slice of her life. And by the way, the number two selling memoir is entitled, Happy, 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 My Life and Legacy as the Duck Commander, written by Phil Robertson. Okay, come on, be honest. We sang I'll Fly Away. So how many of you actually watch Duck Dynasty? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So let's, let, let's, let's pick up the pen just for a moment. Now, for some of you students, uh, a pen is this manual device you use to write on paper that comes without spell check. So perhaps it would be better for you to pick up a laptop or an iPhone. So let's pick whatever it is that you use um, to write, and let's imagine that you are going to record your memoir, some slice of your life that is most significant to you, something or some period of time that has had a life-altering effect on the course of your existence. Think of it this way. If you were writing to a family member, especially a child, maybe even a grandchild, what stories or what legacy would you want to leave? What are the most important moments or events of your life that you would want them to know? I'll give you some time to think about that. Maybe like many memoirs, you would write about your childhood. Maybe it's difficulties and challenges with some words of encouragement, you know, about how to navigate middle school or something. Maybe you'd write about the exciting days of yesteryear when you were an athletic or academic star. Perhaps you would write about those very exciting college days, some of those crazy things that you did and actually lived to tell about it, warning them, by the way, not to do the same things. Maybe there were some periods of time in your life well, that you're not proud of, that slice of partying or drinking and drugging when it became all-encompassing, and you would warn of its life-altering dangers. 
Maybe you'd write about that, 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 that love-struck time you first met your future spouse, the early days of dating or courting, those, those moments of bliss and, and the unknown and, and maybe even occasional heartbreak. Maybe you'd write about a, a certain period of employment, how you, how you founded this business and then you built it into a successful empire. Maybe you'd write about the birth of your first child, maybe the child that you're writing to right now, the joys and sorrows of parenting you. Those are all important. Memories that we should seek to pass on, that may be of some benefit, some value to the generations coming up behind us. But here's my question. Again, and I need you to listen, not in any way diminishing the important events of our, of our lives. Those are all important that I listed. But here's a question. Would there be any spiritual events that would comprise an important and, dare I say, the most important life-altering moments, the slice of your life, would you record those? Would you pass them on to your posterity? Here's maybe a better way to ask the question. Have you passed on spiritual life-altering moments to someone else? I shared with you some time ago that my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a paraplegic the last 25 years of his life. He was a construction worker. And, and, and one day they were framing a house and he was on the second floor and he slipped and he fell, landed on his back. And the doctor said, probably would have been okay if it wasn't for the hammer in his back pocket, snapped his spine. So he's a paraplegic last 25 years. He lived down in Belmont, by the way. And, and we would drive up from Greenville to visit when I was in high school. In those last 25 years of his life, uh, that didn't mean it took me 25 years to get through high school, but in the, the last 25 years of his life, he collected two things. You could go to his one-acre lot there uh, in his house, and he had almost every variety of fruit tree that you could imagine. I mean, they, I don't know that they were fruit producing, but they were there, and he would wheel me through the yard and point them out to me. The second thing that he collected were books, Christian books. Good books. Now, you have to understand, my grandfather had a seventh grade education, and I'm not sure that he ever actually read them. But I, we would come up for a visit, and eventually he would wheel me. I don't know why he picked me, but he would wheel me back to his little study, his little office where the books were, and he would point out the new books that, that, that he had just gotten in. And he told me one day, especially after I decided I felt God's call to ministry, that he was going to give me those books. And then he would talk about what they said. I suppose he got them from the, the, the cover, but he would talk to me about his relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll never forget those times as my grandfather poured spiritual moments into me. I can remember the very last time I saw him. Uh, my, my fiance, my, who was to be my wife, came out for a visit. And we went up to, to see my, my grandfather. I wanted to introduce him to my grandfather, my grandmother. And so just as was his habit, he wheeled me back by myself to the study, closed the door, and he looked up to me and he said, son, you've done real good. A lot better than I expected. <laughs> the last time I saw him. 
I have been privileged as a pastor to hear lots of life stories, testimonies, if you want to use that word. I've, I've met with hundreds, probably by this time, thousands of people through the years, and I, I love to ask people to share their stories. Give me a brief autobiography, a memoir. Now listen, it amazes me the number of times that people start with either I was raised in a Christian home or I wasn't. And then to talk about the effect that start had on their lives. So here's the question, what's your story? And what is it that you are seeking to pass on? There are 13 letters that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that have found their way into our Scripture that we call the New Testament, and they contain invaluable, inspired truth upon which we build our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And in those letters, he records some, some memories, some events, some moments in his life that give us a, a glimpse of things that were most important to him. Our text this morning contains such a slice, a, slice, a, a memoir of, of Paul's life. It's found at the end of Colossians chapter 1, then proceeding into chapter 2. Look at it with me. Colossians 1, 29 and following says this. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. That or so that, this struggle I have so that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Christ. Notice all those words are in italics there. God's mystery, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So, like orange is the new black, Paul picks up the quill and tells us about his struggles as he writes from prison. Now, certainly, um, his life struggles transcend this imprisonment, but this is what he's focusing on, and he tells them how hard he works, how his, he, he has struggled, and then he tells them why. This is why I write. This is why I have worked so hard. In a sense, then, he writes a memoir, following it with some words of encouragement and warning to his readers, and that forms our outline. We're going to see Paul's personal struggles in the first couple of verses. Then we're going to see the purpose of sharing those struggles for encouragement and then the purpose of sharing those struggles, a warning. You see, much like you would write in your memoirs, your struggles to encourage and perhaps warn those closest to you, Paul does the same thing this morning. Now, before I get to that, let me remind us of where we are in this letter. 
Paul writes the letter because some false teachers had arrived in Colossae, probably Laodicea as well, which is about 11 miles away. Uh, These teachers were in some way diminishing the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So all through chapter 1, Paul exalts our great God and Savior, Jesus. He is supreme over creation, and he is supreme over the church. And Jesus is also the one through whom we come into the church. It is through Jesus that we are reconciled to God. And of this message of reconciliation of this church, Paul says, I have been made a minister. And and we found that within that ministry, his ultimate goal was to proclaim Christ. That's it. I want to proclaim Jesus to you so that he could present every person complete in Christ. We proclaim uh, Christ because he is sufficient for all that we need and for all that we will ever need and all that we will become. We also saw last week that that proclamation of Christ for the purpose of presenting people complete in Christ for Paul came through preaching. It came through the proclamation of the word of God. In other words, the application for us very clear The foundation of our maturity in Christ is found in the Bible. So stop right there just a moment. I challenged you last week to be people of the Bible. Not just devotionals. Devotionals are good, but but not those, just those. To read the Bible. Again, our maturity, our being made complete in Christ is directly tied to our growth in the Word of God. This is so important, critically important, I'm going to ask you, how did you do this week? Did you spend some intentional time in the Word of God? Before you answer, man, Scott, I got really, really busy. I'm suspecting most of you had time to eat. The Word of God is that spiritual food by which we build ourselves up in the faith. So did you spend time in the Bible? So important, I'm going to keep asking you that question. All that brings us then, that's been the flow of thought. That brings us to our text this morning as we continue this study of Paul's letter as we arrive now at this short memoir. Point one, Paul's personal struggle. For this purpose... He says, that is for this ultimate purpose of presenting every person complete in Christ, I labor, I strive according to his power which mightily works within me. Paul is so committed to completing the gospel in the lives of believers, meaning, as we saw last week, not only faith in Christ and freedom from sin, he's so committed to seeing followers grow to fullness in Christ, maturity in Christ, that he labors. He works hard. I think it's correct to say that this was the guiding principle of Paul's life and work. I want you to understand, he says this all through his letters, this was it for him. If you were to record his legacy, it would be this, I worked hard 
for the fullness of the gospel in the lives of people so that they would be presented fully complete in him. I worked my tail off. You see, the word labor speaks of hard, laborious, wearisome, toilsome work. And the word, wor- uh, the word striving there, right, right connected with it, is the word agonizomai. And the only reason I tell you that is because I like saying that word, agonizomai. I've always liked that word. It's a word from which we get our word agony. It was, a, it was a word used to speak of the intense, grueling work, now listen, required to compete in the games, the Isthmian games or the, or the, or the Olympic games. It speaks of intense fighting and, and training. And those of you who are athletes know that if you want to get to the next level, you've got to push yourself to every ounce of energy that you have and then beyond. I remember times in, when I was in, I went to a military school for a little while. That's another awful story. Um, I went to a military school for a little while, and they would, they would test us physically, and they would put us through all of these rigorous events that at the end, they had trash cans. I'm not making this up. They had trash cans lined up so that you could go throw up, and you were expected to. Paul uses these two words to speak of giving every ounce of energy that he had to complete the work of proclaiming Christ. He left nothing. It'd be like at an athletic contest, you get to the end of the event and there is absolutely nothing left. You collapse. Some of you remember the story of David Brainerd. Uh, Brainerd was a missionary to the Native Americans in this country in the 1700s. He understood, I believe, the importance of the gospel, the supreme importance of Christ being known and formed in the lives of people, especially the Native Americans. And his goal, his life goal, we know this because he wrote it down, his life goal was to, quote, burn out in one continual flame for God. Now, I know that today that burnout is considered a bad thing. We talk about it's, we don't want to burn out. We did, we're doing interviews as we're talking to different people, different men, about the possibility of coming serving as a worship pastor. And just this week, someone at, one of the guys asked that question, and he said to, so what do you guys do to prevent burnout? And I said, You're a little confused. That's our goal. We want to burn out in one continual flame for Christ. And oh, by the way, Brainerd did. He succeeded. He succumbed. As he he shared with the Native Americans, he succumbed to tuberculosis and died when he was 27 years of age. What a waste, you say, was it? For this purpose, I labor, I strive, I give every ounce of energy I have working with God's power in me to see Christ fully formed in you. I suppose that some could look at Paul's life, which ended in martyrdom, and suggest, man, if he'd just been a little more subtle, a little more subdued, a little more diplomatic, a little more balanced, if only some of those 
trips he took were cruises on the Mediterranean. I mean, he's right there, you know, visit the Parthenon or something. Maybe he wouldn't have ended up on the wrong side of the sword. He was beheaded. And I'm quite confident that there is very little that Paul would change about his life. So let's stop right there for a moment. I know this is the Apostle Paul and Brainerd and all that. But Paul exerted every ounce of energy for believers to be matured in Christ. I know that Paul was called to this task by Jesus himself. But I also want you to remember from verse 1 to chapter 2, these were brothers and sisters in Colossae and Laodicea who had never seen his face. He had never met them. And yet, so important to him was the fullness of Christ being formed in people that he gave everything that he had. So as you think this morning, that's what we're doing, as you think about your legacy, what is it for which you expend the most energy, the most labor? What is it you strive for, you reach for, you train for, you agonize for? What is it for you? And now let me be clear. Many of the things that, again, that I listed earlier, that we place a high value on are important, okay? So, so working hard at school as a student, do that. Working hard at your jobs or in your homes is a good and honorable thing. Please don't misunderstand me. Be the best student. I believe no one should work harder than Christian students and Christian employees. Do that. But... As you contemplate the important moments and events in your life, can you point to the supreme importance of Christ in your life? Think of it this way. If someone were to write your biography right now, how important would Christ figure in the story? Okay, you're, you're, you're laying, this is where we put them, right here. We have funerals. You're laying in a coffin right here. People stand up and say nice things about you because that's what we do at funerals. So they stand up and say nice things about you. Would they talk about Christ in your life? What is the legacy that you are attempting, the legacy of faith that you are attempting to pass on as people reminisce about your life? What will your posterity say was your greatest achievements. Please notice, Paul was careful to lay credit where credit was due. I labor, I strive according to his power, which works mightily in me. He is saying, I could not do this on my own. If Paul can't do it, neither can we. The work of Christ in his church takes the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish anything for him. So, if you do anything today, I do not want you to leave here this morning attempting to rewrite your personal history. It's not, the, it's not my goal. Rather, I want you to recognize that your spiritual legacy is dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and through you. And that it takes a conscious surrendering of ourselves to him and his control. That we give it all up for, for, for Christ. Spirit, fill me. Empower me so that I can work my tail off. 
in the power of the Holy Spirit. We agonize. We work to the point of exhaustion. It's what these words describe, by the way, working to the point of exhaustion, burnout, whatever. We labor, we strive, so we leave a legacy, a Christ-honoring memoir like Paul did. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul continues recounting this moment. For I want you to know how great a struggle, that word is related to striving in the previous verse, so it's the word agonizomai. How great an agonizing struggle I have, present tense, right now I'm having on your behalf. He's speaking of his current imprisonment. I want you to know how great this struggle is on your behalf. Remember, we looked at that last week. I shared the gospel with Epaphras. He shared it with you. But as I shared it, and as I was completely sold out for the gospel, it cost me. And I'm paying for it. I'm in prison. That's okay. Because I am filling up in this flesh that which is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For you Colossians, for you Laodiceans, for people who have never seen my face, that would be people here. He laid it on the line for you. Again, we note that Paul's labor, his striving, his struggle, please note, was for others. It wasn't to make his name great. There is not an Apostle Paul Memorial Chapel. It wasn't to increase his personal fortune, to build an empire, to enrich himself. So we must ask this question of us, how much of what we do how much of what our life story records is for others or for me? How much is for the sake of Christ and His people and His church? And how much of my agonizing labor, my hours and hours of overtime, is for me? Paul worked hard tirelessly for the sake of others. Why? To what end? That brings us to our second point. The last two will go very quickly. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. I work hard. I strive. I struggle so that there, that's the Colossians, that's the Laodiceans, that's everyone who hasn't seen his face. That includes us. I labor so that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, to, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom, of, uh, wisdom and knowledge. Don't tune out. I, I know that that is a mouthful. Paul was fond of laying word on word and phrase on phrase to overwhelm us with the wealth of all that we have in Christ. So let's look, break that down. Paul wants our hearts, we haven't seen his face, he's talking to us, to be encouraged or comforted, strengthened is the idea, because of all that we have in Christ. Our spiritual wealth is seen as we are united in love, as we attain to all the wealth that, that comes from this full assurance of understanding, and, and this wealth is, is seen as we attain to the true knowledge of God's mystery, that's Jesus. Verse 4, he talks about this treasure of Christ himself. So, I want them to be encouraged as they are united or knit together in love. We are the body of Christ. And we are actually bonded 
together, encouraged together by our love for one another. And remember, this fits in to that mystery language that he's talking about. We are bonded together, doesn't matter who we are, doesn't matter what our background is, doesn't matter what our nationality or ethnicity is, we are actually encouraged by the fact that it doesn't matter what we look like or what we are, we are followers of Jesus Christ and we are knit together in love. First thing Paul wants us to understand that makes us wealthy is we have everything we need because we share a mutual love of Christ. Second, we are encouraged as we attain all the wealth. Paul has been using that word all over and over to battle these false teachers who were saying you don't have all. There's more to be had in addition to Jesus. Paul says, I want you to be encouraged as you grow in all of the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. You do have it all, folks. You just just have to grow in your apprehension of and growth in and assurance of what you have. Notice it's full assurance. You don't have to wonder about this. You have, this has been the whole point of chapter one. You have everything you need in Jesus. Which results third in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Not this aberrant view the false teachers were propagating. They were saying, hey, we have something really special, really secret. No, you have the true knowledge of the mystery. It's been revealed, the content of which is Christ. Paul is saying, I work tirelessly for this. This is what I give myself for so that you may have a true knowledge of everything that you have in Jesus. In him are hidden. It doesn't mean it's not known. In him we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some of the treasures, all. You don't need to look somewhere else. Again, these False teachers were claiming a superior knowledge, a superior wisdom. Paul said, no. In Christ has found all the treasures you could ever hope for. Look to Jesus. In fact, I give myself, I strive, I struggle, I work tirelessly because point three, I don't want anyone to delude you with persuasive arguments. This is a direct reference to those false teachers that we're finally going to get to uh, next week, Lord willing. The these guys had, had shown up in town, and they, they sounded really good. They probably looked good. I'm confident they had goatees. They were, they were, they were, they were rational. They were, sorry if you've got a goatee. Uh, they were reasonable. Uh, the, the, the idea of persuasive arguments is that of speculative, well-crafted, fancy, persuasive argumentation. They used every persuasive argument to make empty promises. And he says, I don't want you to be deluded by them. This is a lot like today. Many use persuasive arguments both inside and outside the church to attack Christianity, to attack the reality and supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. I've told you over and over again, this is where they focus the attack. It is against Jesus. And it is interesting to note that today many of those attacks come through intellect and reason. Right? Come on. Let's sit down and talk turkey. Come on, be serious. When are you going to give up this fable, this myth? The truth is some of these persuasive arguments have been around for a long time. We can deal with them. And, and, And the truth is some we, well, we can't. 
They're very persuasive, fine-sounding argumentation. And in the end, we must remember that it is called the Christian faith. And if you come to the end of the day and all you want is rational, reasonable, evidentiary, incontrovertible truth of the reality of Christ and His gospel, you may not get all you want. It takes faith. Reason will only take you so far. You remember the story of Thomas. After the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to his disciples, all except Judas, who was like hanging from a tree, and Thomas, um, who was not there when Jesus first appeared. He leaves, Thomas comes back, they excitedly tell him, hey, he's alive, we've seen the Lord. Thomas responded, I won't believe it until I have some rational proof. Until I have some physical, tangible, incontrovertible evidence. In fact, I'm not going to believe it unless I can put my, my fingers in the nail prints in his hands and put my hand in his side where they thrust that spear to make sure that he was dead. I need evidence. That's where some of you are. It sounds rational, but golly, it just takes too much faith, Right? A few days later, Jesus shows up again. Thomas is there. Jesus looked at Thomas and said, Hey, get over here, Thomas. Put your fingers right here in my hands. Put your hand in my side, and you will see that it's me. You want proof, Thomas? Okay, here I am. Thomas falls to the ground and says, he exclaims a wonderful statement, My Lord and my God, and Jesus said, Good for you. You, you believe because you've seen Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed because it takes faith. And I don't want you to be deluded simply by rational, intellectual, persuasive arguments. It takes faith. Finally, Paul says to the Colossians, and in a sense to us, for even though I am not, ab, uh, even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit. All he means by that is not an out-of-body experience. All that means is um, uh, I'm not there in the flesh, but I'm there with you because I'm part of the body of Christ. I've written this letter to you, and I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. I like that. To see your good discipline. And, and, and the stability of your faith. Some point to the fact that those are often used as military terms. You are well-disciplined and stable uh, in faith like good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And as one commentator pointed out, it makes good preaching, doesn't fit the context. Um, the, 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 the words point to personal discipline resulting in strength or stability, stable, unmoving faith. You see, in order to withstand the attacks of our faith, in order uh, to stand against persuasive arguments, we must be disciplined. It's why I asked you at the beginning when I was reviewing, did you spend time in the Bible this week? You must be disciplined. In order to, to stand firm, to have a stable, unmoving faith, the idea is in keeping with work, in this laborious struggle, training, tireless training, takes discipline to compete well. How are you doing? 
I rejoice in the stability, the unshakable nature of your faith. That though some come with persuasive arguments, you are not moved. You stand firm. You are strong. It takes personal, spiritual discipline to produce strong, stable, uncompromising faith. So as we close, let me take us back to the beginning. What does your memoir read? What is the story of your life? What does your life communicate? You see, Paul gets to the end of his life, and he records one final memoir. Usually we use it in the plural, memoirs. It means there are many. His final memoir is found in the last chapter of the last letter that he wrote. At least it's the last one that we have in our New Testament. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, last chapter, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. It's time for me to die. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. Listen, I have kept the faith. I kept it. Fine-sounding, persuasive arguments did not deter me. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is later for me crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, what does your life story read? Let's stand for prayer.